If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you do not have one with you this morning, feel free to grab a, a blue one on the end of your pew or, or a phone or device that you have with us that have with you that has a Bible app on it. Uh, whatever you prefer works for me, just as long as it's the Bible and not something else. Uh, this morning we are continuing through Romans 9 and looking specifically this morning at, at verses 24 through 29. But I want to back up and read to you, uh, going all the way back to verse 6 and seeing Paul Paul's argument as it lays out completely in its entirety here in this chapter. And I think it's important that we maintain context for what we're studying. And so it's good for us to be reminded of where where Paul has come from and what Paul has said so that we can understand what he is saying here. So look with me in in Romans nine, beginning in verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us. Whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. The grass withers 
and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we come to your word seeking your help. For we do not and cannot understand your word if you do not provide understanding. We cannot obey unless you provide obedience. We cannot have faith unless you provide faith. We cannot have sight unless you provide sight. We need you. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we we come needing you to, to help us to see, to help us understand. Father, we place trust and faith, dependence on the promise that this word, your word, will not fail. And so help us to know it and help us to treasure it. Help us to see the truth and the reality that it points to that you are God and that we are not. Teach us your ways. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For longer than I think anyone can remember, people have theorized and thought and pondered and wondered, often grasping at straws, trying to figure out what their purpose in life is. And while this thinking has been done by by people from every culture and every religion, the people of God have a specific wording for this purpose, the calling of God. And so we ask questions. What is God calling me to do? What is God's calling for my life? How can I know what his calling is? You see, while I I believe that God does, in fact, call people, that he gives them specific purposes. After all, I, I believe that God has called me to be the pastor here at Bear Creek. What strikes me as odd about this entire discussion and and thought process is The biblical support for this way of thinking about the call of God. Or maybe I should say the lack of biblical support for this way of thinking about the call of God. Does the Bible speak about God calling people? Absolutely. But that calling in the Bible is almost entirely and almost always related not to career choice and not to family decisions and not to where we should live, but almost always based on salvation. You see, we we turn this calling into what does God want me to do with my life? Where what job does he want me to pursue? What should I study in college? What degree should I pursue? What should I do with my life? And we think that's what God's calling is. Or we'll turn it into who does God want me to marry? Who is God calling to be my partner? Who is God? How many children is God calling us to have? Where we'll live and all the minute details of our lives. And we think, what is God calling me to do in this? Now, I I think that. Yes, there are certainly aspects that God calls people to do certain things and go certain places and to to raise families and to be about certain things. I, I can't deny that. But I think primarily. First and foremost. God calls people not to careers and not to families and not to locations. God calls people primarily to himself. First and foremost. 
And the reality is, is that when when God calls people to himself, that almost always comes with a calling for themselves, for their lives, for where they go. And we see this in Scripture. Abraham, for example. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he called Abraham first to himself. You will be mine. And from your people, from your offspring will come my people. But with this calling of Abraham to God, God then called Abraham to leave his family, pick up and move and go to the land that God was showing him. We see it with Jeremiah called by God before he was born. And this calling by God to come and be God's belong to God came with also a career choice. You're a prophet. I told Jeremiah. Paul, we see likewise the Damascus road. Jesus comes to him in this road and says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And draws him to himself, bringing, calling Paul to God. And then says, now go be an apostle to the Gentiles. So God's calling, I think, always entails a direction for life. But it begins always with a call to God. And so for those of you who are here this morning trying to, to figure out what God's calling on your life is, let me just give it to you straight right here at the beginning. This is it. What is God calling you to do? What is his calling on your life? His calling is for you to be his. He is calling you to himself. And there is no greater calling that your life could ever possibly have that is better and deeper and more profound than that. And you see, it does not matter if you're someone struggling with your faith or you're trying to figure out just exactly what you believe. You could just be an outright atheist this morning or you could be a Christian who's, who, who cannot remember a time in your life where you did not know Jesus. Either way, God is calling you to himself. To come closer, to be nearer, to know him more, to see him as more worthy, to see him as more valuable, to, to treasure him more deeply. And this calling always comes to us through his gospel, through the word proclaimed. This morning, as we as we study Romans nine, I want us to look deeply into this calling of God, what it is and how it works and what happens as a result when God calls and you'll notice in verses 24 through through 26, really how often the word call appears. It's repeated over and over and over again. It's repeated by Paul. It's repeated by the Old Testament passages. He quotes it is underlying almost every verse that I've just read. God calling. And so because it's repetitive, I believe that it's important and we should understand what it means. And so to do that, we'll walk through these verses that I've just read. But but there are also other places, both in Romans and in other passages of Scripture, that I want to point your attention to. So we don't normally flip around a lot during this time of our, our worship. But let me challenge you this morning to keep your Bibles open and to stay with me. To keep a finger in Romans 9, because we're going to stay in Romans 9 primarily. But we may jump back a page or back a few chapters or back to the Old Testament because I want you to see this a full picture of what the calling of God really is. 
I want you to see for yourself the power and the effectiveness when God calls. Because what I believe that this passage teaches is, is honestly, it's quite simple, maybe too simple. But it's life changing if you can grab hold of it. And really, the, the main point from, from 24 through 29 of Romans 9 is God calls people, both Jew and Gentile, God calls people to himself. He does it. This is what he does. And before we can really dive in too deeply to what this passage is teaching, we need to be clear about the type of calling Paul is referring to. Because I think the calling of God has two components and two aspects of it. God's calling can be both general and specific. See, generally, God calls all people through the proclamation of the gospel. We, we say it in our benediction every week as we are called to go out and make disciples of all nations. We are to, to cast a wide net. We are to proclaim broadly to generally all people. Because God is calling all people to himself, generally. But ultimately, this broad and general calling is rejected. It's, it's denied. It's resisted. And that's why this calling, well, there's also a component of God's calling that is specific, intentional, effectual. Because while the gospel goes out to all people and we proclaim it broadly and widely and generally, all people, quite honestly, just do not believe it. All are not saved. But for those that are saved, for those who who do believe, it is the result not of just understanding it better than everyone else. It is the result not of seeing it more clearly than the people next to you. For those who believe in the gospel, when it is proclaimed broadly, this is the result of the specific and effectual and gracious call of God on that individual's life. And it is this, this specific calling of God that I want to focus on this morning. Because that's not to say that the general calling of God is not important. The general call is important. It matters. And we should understand that God is generally calling all people to himself. But if there is no specific call of God, then the general call will always, always, always fall on dead and deaf ears. It is the specific call of God where God is enacting his sovereign election of his people. We've been spending a lot of time here in Romans 9 talking about this doctrine of election, how God chooses those whom he will save and he hardens those whom he will harden. He shows mercy on those that he shows mercy. He has compassion on those whom he has compassion. And the reason that God does this is not in anything in us, but it is simply because he is God and he can do it. And what I want you to see this morning as we talk about calling is, is this the way that it connects to election is that God chooses those whom he saves. And the way that he enacts that election, the way that he puts that election into action is by going to those people, going to those that he has chosen and, in, and specifically calling them to himself. He doesn't leave it up to chance. He doesn't just cross his fingers and say, I hope I pick the right person. But he chooses those whom he saves and then he goes to those people and he calls them and he says, come. 
And so there are five truths that I want, to, I want you to see from this passage and from, from Scripture about this specific and effectual call of God. First, God's specific call precedes faith. God's specific call precedes faith. Turn back just a, just a page or two in your Bibles into Romans 8. We were here a couple of months ago and, and, and we were looking at what many have referred to as this golden chain of salvation in, in verses uh, 28, 29, and 30. Because what Paul is, is giving in these verses is this process and this order of salvation. How God works and how he moves in our lives. And so what, look, look with me at Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the word again, called. For whom exactly does all things turn together for good? It's the people who are called by God according to his purpose. Paul continues, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, Paul is giving this order of salvation here, how this works. First, God foreknows us. He, he knows us intimately before we were born. Every facet of our being, he knows us. And knows us in the sense that he loves us. This intimacy that is there. And those who he foreknew, he predestines. He chooses who will belong to him, who will be his people. That's election. That's what we've been examining the last several weeks. And then he calls those whom he predestines. This is the specific, the effectual call. This is God's election in action in our lives. He doesn't leave it up to us to believe because we couldn't. We can't. Dead people cannot bring themselves back to life, no matter how hard they try. I've never seen a corpse do CPR on itself. And, and the fact of the matter is, is you, me, as, as people prior to Christ and prior to salvation, prior to faith, the Bible is very clear, we are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead people don't do CPR on themselves. So God calls. He brings the dead to life. And then he justifies those he called. Justification is a term that we use very often in, in referring to conversion, in referring to that moment of salvation where God declares us righteous in Christ. It is salvation. And we know very clearly that salvation, justification comes only by faith alone. We are justified through faith in Christ. And then when we believe in Jesus, we are justified. You are saved. And justification always leads, as you follow the, the chain, it always leads to glorification, to this future glory with God in the new heavens and the new earth that we will share for all eternity. But you see, this order causes problems. And it, and it causes confusion for us because really, how does this work? Because it's difficult to see this play out in our lives. God's calling is not audible and it's certainly not visible. 
And it seems to happen at almost the exact same time that we are placing faith in Christ. So how can we know for certain that God calls us and then we believe and not vice versa? I read this analogy this week, and I think it's not perfect, but I think it helps. Imagine walking into a a very dark room. It's night. There's no sun coming in through the windows. It is just dark in there. And so naturally, your first response, your first action is going to be to walk over to the light switch and turn the lights on. And to our eyes and from our perception, the lights and the switch happen at the exact same time. You flip the switch, lights come on. There is relatively zero noticeable delay between the two events happening. And we could say very clearly that the lights turn on at the same moment that the switch gets flipped. Right? But do the lights ever turn on if the switch never gets flipped? Something, even though they they seem to happen at the same time, something has to happen first. The light has to, the switch has to be flipped first and then the lights come on. And even though they happen at at very similar, almost simultaneous times, something has to come first. What what I believe that Paul is teaching us here in Romans 9 and in Romans 8 is that though it may seem like it happens at the same time, though it may seem that faith and justification happen, the calling of God happens simultaneously, something has to happen first. When God calls... This calling comes before faith. Because again, we are dead in our sins. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people do not believe. But when God calls, he brings to life. And the calling of God comes before faith comes. The specific calling of God precedes faith. Second, God's specific call is for some Jews and many Gentiles. It is for some Jews and many Gentiles. So go back with me here in Romans 9, where we are this morning. Look at verse 24. Paul is is talking about this this contrast between vessels of wrath and, and vessels of mercy. And he says in verse 24, Even us, whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, this is the first time in this chapter that the Gentiles have been brought up. Throughout this chapter, the focus has been on Israel. You may remember how the chapter began with Paul's unceasing anguish over the fact that there were so many Jewish brothers and sisters of his that were far from God. They were accursed and cut off from Christ. But his thesis for this entire chapter is found in verse six is that God's word has not failed, even in the face of Israel's rejection. And what's, what's happening here is, is Paul is, is preparing and, and beginning this transition into chapters 10 and 11, where he will talk more about the current state of Israel and, and, and what is happening among them and why and the remnant, their future. But here, what would have been shocking to Israel for someone to say, especially a member of Israel to say, is that the gospel, God's salvation is only for a select group within Israel, but it is for many, 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 many Gentiles. And you go back through the Old Testament and you see the the exact opposite to be the case, where God has called Israel to himself. Israel is his people. They are special. They are chosen. They are different from all the other nations. But 
we get this really difficult message where Paul says, only some of you from Israel will belong. Only some of you will be spared. Only some of you will be saved. But all of the nations that have been excluded for so long, all of those people that when they came to Jerusalem to see the Passover feast, you didn't let them come into the temple because they were simply Gentiles. They will be saved. Many, many, many of them will be saved. And so to support this point, this thing that, argue, that Paul is making, he uses these two Old Testament prophets, Hosea and then Isaiah. And what stands out about the prophecies, and we'll get to these in just a moment, but both of them were given originally to Israel in a time of faithlessness, a time of spiritual apostasy within God's people. They had forsaken him. They had forsaken God. They had turned away from him. They were faithless to the covenant. And yet God remained faithful despite their faithlessness. You see, Paul's making the same point that he made back in verses 6 and 7, that not all Israel is Israel, but the people of God now spread across every national border, every people group, every culture, every language, every tribe, and every tongue. Does that include Israel? Yes, but not all of Israel. I mean, look at the Isaiah prophecy in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You know, we'll get to chapter 11, Lord willing, over the next few months, and we'll look more deeply into this remnant theology. But for now, let me just say this. God's specific call can and is given to every race, every tribe, every tongue. It is meant for every human being. It can be sent and can be given to anyone. That Paul is saying that what matters is grace, not race. And at the end of it all, when we stand before the throne of God, gathered with the multitudes upon multitudes of people that God has saved, it says very clearly... God's word describes people from every tribe and every tongue standing before that throne. Because God's call will go to every tribe and every tongue. And so when we say God's specific call is for some Jews and it's for many Gentiles, what we are saying and what we are meaning is this. No one is ever too far gone. God can and does save anyone. You do not have to belong to a certain group of people. You do not have to belong to a certain race. You do not have to have have grown up in church or grown up hearing the stories of Jesus or grown up having Noah's Ark painted on your nursery wall. What God is saying is I can and I do call anyone. God's call precedes faith and God's call is for all people. It is for some Jews and for many Gentiles. Third, God's specific call is transformational. God's specific call is transformational. Let's look at this first prophecy, the one from Hosea. You, you may remember we studied Hosea a few years ago, that Hosea was, was called by God and then told to do something unimaginably difficult. To go and marry a prostitute. 
A woman that would constantly leave him and return to all of her former lovers. That would take Hosea's money and take his resources and go spend it on other men. And all of this was to illustrate this adulterous relationship that Israel had with God. As Israel chased after other gods, other, uh, other idols, other false lovers. And Hosea had, had a few children with his wife, Gomer. And, and God told them when they were born, God told Hosea, this is what you are to name them. The first was born and, and God said, name this one Jezreel. He was named after a place where one of the bloodiest battles, bloodiest moments in all of Israel's history. Where people were just beheaded and piled up and all their heads were placed in a nice, beautiful, lovely pile in the middle of the city. And that place was called Jezreel. God says, that's a good name for your firstborn. Secondborn comes along and God says, name this one no mercy. Because I'm done having mercy on the people of Israel. Third one comes along and says, name this one, not my people, because they are no longer my people. And I can't imagine the, the, the assumptions and the, the connotations that came from the people in Hosea's town. As they said, oh, what, what a lovely little boy. What's his name? Oh, that one. He's not mine. What do you mean? Well, his mom's a prostitute. But Paul uses this reference in Hosea, the, the, the pain, the difficulty, the, the message of Hosea. And he uses this reference to point out something incredible about God's gracious and saving power. Just, just look at verse 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You see, when God calls you specifically, effectually, he does not leave you the same. God takes dead people. He calls dead people and he brings them to life. He takes deserts. And he turns them into gardens. He takes ashes and he makes them beautiful. And we can get even more specific here because that's what Paul is doing. He is saying that the Gentiles, the people that the Jews regarded as beneath them, unworthy of God's love, unworthy to be counted as the people of God, unworthy even to worship God in the temple because of who they were. God took those people and he called them specifically, effectually, and he transformed them because he called them to himself. God took the people that were not his and he made them and he made them his. God took the people that were orphans and outcasts and outsiders and he adopted them and said, you are now my children. And once God calls, the people that were far from God, unworthy of God, are now transformed. They are called sons of the living God. He takes people that are unloved and unlovable. He takes filthy, vile wretches and he transforms us into people that he loves. I love that Hosea and Paul both use the word beloved here. 
Because it's not a word that even we use for a lot of people. In fact, I can, be will, I can be willing to say that only the people that are married use this term regarding one person in their life. There is one person that you, husbands and wives, call my beloved. And it's your spouse. In fact, this, this word, beloved, appears more in the Song of Solomon than any other book in Scripture. Because it's a term of endearment, a title given only to one other person. Someone that you have committed yourself to in a covenant, unbreaking relationship. It is the one that your heart belongs to. And God says to those who used to be called not beloved, I will call my beloved. God says, all of you who are worthy of my wrath, all of you who are worthy of my righteous judgment, all of you who are not my beloved, I will call you. And I will transform you and I will make you my beloved. God's specific call transforms us. Believer, you once did not belong to God. You once were not his beloved. But in Christ, God has called you and he has transformed you into his people, into his beloved And you will forever be called the beloved of God. That will never change. And the only reason this happened is because he called you. God's God's specific call is transformational. Fourth, God's specific call never fails to save. God's specific call never fails. Fails to save. This one is where I'd be willing to say many of us are going to get hung up, but I want you to bear with me and hear me on this. Keep your finger in Romans 9 and, and, and turn with me all the way back to Isaiah 55. We're going to come, come back to Romans 9 in just a minute, so don't lose your spot there, but I want you to see it. I could just read it to you, but I want you to see it. I want you to see Isaiah 55. And to understand what, it, what we are saying here. Because I've, I've already said it this morning, I'll, I'll say it again. Paul's main thesis in Romans 9 is not to convince you of God's election. It's not to convince you that he chooses whom he chooses. His purpose is to convince you that his word does not fail. That his word, when it goes out, when he speaks, things happen. And they happen exactly as God planned them to happen. It does not fail. And that's the argument Paul is making. Because God's word never fails, his specific calling, when it goes out to individuals, when God calls specific individuals, he never fails to call them and to save them. Look with me, Isaiah 55, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth. Making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, when it comes to God's election, I I think this is where many of us get hung up on this idea that, that we have to choose God, that we have to place faith in Christ to be saved. And I think that many of us also know and believe that God has to do something inside of us for that faith to take root. 
He has to prick our hearts. He has to to help us see. He has to call us to himself. But ultimately, we would say it's still up to me to make that choice. And this is where I think we're wrong in this. Because it's just not true that when God calls us, we then have the choice to say no. Not as it relates to this specific call of God. The general call, this proclamation, this broad proclamation of the gospel. When we, when we as humans call people to place faith in Christ, that's a general calling of God. People say no to that all the time. And they will say no to that until the end of time. We're not talking about this. What we're talking about is the specific calling of God where God moves in the heart of someone, of an individual, where he specifically, intentionally, effectually calls individuals and he says, come to me. And what I'm saying to you from Isaiah 55 and from Romans 9 is that when God says specifically to individuals, come to me, that word never fails. You cannot say no to that. Because if we could, then Isaiah 55 is a lie. Because if we could, then God's word effectively is going out to us and we are saying, I'm good. No, thanks. Can't be done. Isaiah teaches us this truth. He says, when rain and the snow fall to the earth, it does not fail to water the ground. It does not get caught somewhere else before touching the earth, before watering roots. It never misses its mark. And the comparison that Isaiah is making is the same for the word of God. When his word leaves his mouth, it does not fail to reach its target. And not only does it, does it not fail to reach its target, it accomplishes, it succeeds in doing exactly what that word was given to do. What Romans 9 is teaching us and what Isaiah 55 is teaching us is that when God specifically calls sinners, sinners come running. I mean, honestly, if we consider this, if God sets himself to do anything, are we really are we really willing to say that something could stand in the way? If God wants to do anything, if God has a plan and a purpose and says, this is what I'm going to do, are we really wanting to make the argument? But I could say no. What creature could ever stop the creator? Or do we have such a small view of God and such a great view of ourselves that we think that we could resist his gracious calling in our lives? You can't do it. I mean, look at Jonah. How'd that go? Jonah did tell God no. And God sent a giant fish and swallowed Jonah up and then spit him on the beach of the city that he was called to go to. When God calls sinners, when he chooses to save his people, No one can resist. No one can say no. Because if they could, 
then God's word, God's call failed. And God's word simply just cannot do that. It does not fail. It never fails to save. Fifth, finally, go back with me to to Romans 9. Uh, If the fifth truth that I want you to see from God's calling is this. If God does not call anyone specifically, then no one will be saved. If God does not call anyone, no one will be saved. So we we see back in Romans 9, we've seen the, the first two prophecies that Paul has mentioned. Look at the last one. It's from Isaiah in verse 29. And I, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here's the final truth that we must understand and we must believe. Israel was God's chosen people. They belonged to him. And yet they were faithless, rebellious, idolatrous, adulterous. And, and because of this, they, they deserved to be wiped out. Righteously judged and removed, not just from the promised land, but removed from the face of the earth, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But in his grace, God chose to save a remnant of Israel. To leave some offspring, to spare them annihilation. And it wasn't because this remnant was faithful or pious. All of Israel was broken. But God chose and he called a select group within Israel to save. And Israel even says it. Isaiah says it. That if God had not done this. If God had not saved some of us. We would have been lost forever. Condemned, judged, destroyed as they deserved. And yet God called some Jews to himself to save them according to his purpose. And the same can be said for all of us. If God does not call any of us, then none of us will be saved. So there we have it. The specific calling of God in which God enacts his election in our lives. To save those whom he chooses to save. To show mercy on those whom he chooses to show mercy. Now why does this matter? More than just an interesting theological debate. Why does this matter? I think there's three things that this calls us to as believers. First, stand in awe of his mercy to you, believer. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that the only reason you have faith, the only reason you have life, the only reason you have a future and a hope is because God called you. God called you not because you were capable, but but precisely because you were incapable of saving yourself, of choosing God. You could not choose him because you were dead in your sins. And yet God chose you because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Don't ever stop being amazed at this. Second, rest in the security of your salvation. You see, if your salvation, if my salvation rests on on my love for God, on my obedience, even on my faith and my ability to believe the promises of God. Then what real security could I ever hope to have? I mean, I'll be honest, I can look at my own heart and I can say my heart is too fickle to trust. 
My faith is too imbalanced to lean on. But the true wonder of God's calling and his election is that my salvation, my eternity rests not on me, but on him. Because it always has rested on him. It rests and depends on his ability to hold on to me, not my ability to hold on to him. Or as we've sung here before and the choir has led us, when I fear my faith will fail, when the tempter would prevail, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. You can rest securely without fear, without anxiety, without doubt, without wonder, and know for a certainty that your future is secure. Because it rests on him and not on you. Third, finally, we proclaim the gospel because God is calling people to himself. I think I mentioned last week, and I want to say it again here, I think that the biggest Pushback against this doctrine of election is that the, the argument says that election destroys evangelism. God's just going to call whom he calls and he's going to save whom he saves. And so there's no purpose in me going and sharing the gospel with anybody. But that's just not true. We don't know who God is specifically calling to himself. We don't. We do not know the mind of God because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But we do know that God has called us to himself and he has called us to make disciples. And so we proclaim the gospel broadly, widely, indiscriminately, generally. We proclaim the gospel so that everyone may hear it. And we do so knowing That among those whom we tell, God is specifically calling some of them to himself. Our job is to proclaim it generally. God's job is to proclaim it specifically. And when God proclaims it specifically, people are saved. You see, I could never convince anyone of the love of God or of his grace. I could talk to them until I'm blue in the face. But the fact of the matter is, is it just won't get through. I I could never convince anyone of his mercy or of his power, of his majesty, of his glory. I could never persuade anyone to trust in Christ. It's just the reality of it. But God can. And he does. And that's how the lost are saved. That's how the dead are brought back to life. In Christ, that's how the gospel works. Works. We proclaim it generally. God proclaims it specifically. And people come to faith. God calls people specifically to himself. And it is a work that only he can do. Pray with me. God, we're thankful for your word. Thankful more, more so for your calling. God, there's, there's none of us here this morning that can say that we would be here without you working and moving in our lives. That you loved us before we loved you. That you knew us before we knew you. That you called us before we believed in you.
And this calling that you have placed on our lives to draw us to yourself. It is the only reason that we have faith. It is the only reason that we have salvation. It is the only reason that we have security. Because you have called us. In light of this, Father, teach us. Teach us to be in all of your mercy. Teach us to rest in the security that your gospel brings us. And teach us to proclaim the gospel. Trusting that you will specifically, salvifically call some to you. Use your people to bring more to you. All that your name might be glorified and not ours. But that your kingdom would would advance and not ours. Teach us these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.